Throughout this Christmas series, we've been reminding ourselves of who Jesus really is and what he really came to do, why we celebrate Christmas at all. Today, as we wrap things up, we're going to focus on Jesus as the returning king, the returning king. That's what he is, and I'm thankful for that, that he is not just one who came, but is one who is coming again. Very thankful for that, and I hope you are as well, and I hope you're ready. hope you're ready for that. May it be today. Wouldn't that be all right if, uh, if our Christmas celebration was one in heaven and instead of uh, going through another year on, on earth waiting? Maybe today. Maybe today. It's been estimated that there are 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament, across 17 books. And in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to it. So that works out to one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to Christ's second advent. That tells me it's pretty significant, pretty important. Uh, something worth our focus and worth our consideration, worth our belief, worth our preparation. And that's what we really celebrate at Christmas. Uh, it's, it's Advent. That's really at the heart of it all. You, you've seen Advent calendars. Maybe in your home you light the Advent candles every week. Um, Advent is, is really what Christmas is all about, and it comes from the Latin Adventus, and that means literally arrival or appearing, the arrival or the appearing, Adventus, Advent. And in ancient Rome, Adventus was a term to describe the glorious entry of the emperor in Rome into the capital city, usually after some big military campaign and big military victory when he'd come in, you know, triumphantly and all the the pomp surrounding him and all the celebration. It was the Adventus of the emperor uh, after the conquest or the, the victory that he won. And Advent throughout the church's history, centuries old, is the concept of both looking back and looking forward. It's It's kind of like a a two-way arrow, an arrow going backward and an arrow going forward, and that's really how it should be for us. You see, God's people in the Old Testament before Christ came, before the incarnation, God's people that believed His Word looked forward. They looked ahead to the promised Messiah. And they looked forward with eager anticipation, and they were, they were ready and they were expectant that God's promised Messiah would come. So they were looking ahead. We look back to the coming of Jesus, to the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. We look back to Bethlehem. But we also need to look forward. We need to look ahead. We need to look ahead with eager expectation for the the coming again of the one who came. So Advent, in, in its very literal meaning, the arrival, the appearing, the expecting of that great celebration, triumphant arrival, that should mark our hearts and define us. That should drive our whole focus. So our our Christmas celebration and our focus on the gifts and all that go with it, 
that's all good. That's fine. But we need to make sure that in that focus, we focus on the gift that was given, past tense, as well as the gift that is to come. And both are realities. Both are realities. Christ's first advent, which we celebrate on Christmas Day, is proof that we can trust the promise of His second one. That's what I want you to get, church. The first advent, Christmas Day, it's proof that we can trust the promise of the second advent. The the fact that He came and fulfilled all those Old Testament prophecies, it showed that God could be trusted, that He's a promise-keeping God. And the fact that He came to begin with shows us that we can trust all the promises that He's coming again. And if we can trust that, then we can trust every other promise God ever made. God is a promise-keeping God. And in your life, and in my life, we've all seen evidence to the contrary all around us that people, people, we, we humans, we can't ever be fully trusted 100% of the time to keep 100% of our promises. We will let one another down. God never will. And the evidence of that is, is found most of all in the giving, the coming of the Lord Jesus, and the fact that He's coming again. And we can take His word for it directly. Jesus' word for it directly. The one who did come. John 14, 1-3. I would invite you to look at that with me. John 14, 1-3. And I will be reading from the LSB again, the Legacy Standard Bible. John 14, 1 through 3. This is as Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross to fulfill his mission, to fulfill his purpose. We talked about that last week, that he was the sacrificed Savior. That's why he came, born to die, so that we could live. And right before he goes to the cross, he's, he's giving his disciples last-minute instructions, last-minute encouragement, and he says this, do not let your heart be troubled. And their hearts were troubled, weren't they? Their hearts were very troubled as they were contemplating their friend, their, their teacher, their master going to the cross. They didn't fully understand everything yet, even though he had said it over and over and over again, this is why I came. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, you believe in God the Father. Believe in me because I am God the Son. I am God as well. Believe in me equally, just as you believe in my Father. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Wow. If you're in Christ this morning, that's your promise, believer. That's what's waiting for you. If you're not in Christ this morning, unbeliever, today is your chance to become a believer, and to have a place secured for you with Jesus in heaven forever. We need to remember uh, something that 
it may seem odd that I would say we need to remember it, but I think we do because we're so far removed from this in our culture. We need to remember that our Savior, Jesus, is a very Jewish Messiah. It's a very Jewish Messiah. He came to the Jewish people and he came as a Jew. And so what he's saying here in John 14, 1 through 3, it's a very Jewish thing that he's pointing to. The imagery here that he's referring to, it's something that every Jewish person would have understood. Because in the Jewish wedding tradition of Christ's day, which is what he's alluding to here, when a young Jewish man was of the age to marry, he built a room onto his father's house. So there would be a place for him and his bride to live. There wasn't what we do in our culture, you know, where you go around looking for a house and you, you contact a real estate agent and you go through all that. Um, no, this was, it was an established thing. Before he would ever have the bride, before the betrothal or anything, he would start preparing for where he and his bride would live. And it would be in his father's house, on his father's property. It would be built on to the Father's house. And when he was ready to get married, he would go to his father to get permission to go after his bride. And then he would go and he'd collect his bride. And she never knew when he would come for her. Never knew. She had to be ready at all times for him to come and collect her and for the marriage to happen. That's what Jesus is alluding to here in this passage. He's saying, I'm going to get everything ready, and when it's the right time, I'm going to come for you, and you're going to be part of, of me and where I am forever, but it's not yet. And so until I come, you've got to be ready. You've got to be waiting. You've got to be expectant. Isn't that beautiful, that imagery? It's pretty amazing to think that the one who had no room available to him at his first coming is preparing rooms for us before he comes again. But that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing right now. He ever lives to intercede for you and me at, his, at the right hand of his Father, but he also is living to prepare. He's, he's preparing everything for us, his bride. And we are a blemished bride, aren't we? But in his sight, and because of his righteousness, we are a blemishless bride, an unblemished bride that he is eager to receive to himself. And we need to be eager for him to receive us. But it's not yet. We're in that period of waiting. We're in the, the now and the not yet. It's a reality. It's a future reality, but it's, it's not a, a present experience. We're waiting just as his original followers were waiting. He told them he was going to go to the cross, he was going to die, he was going to rise again. He said he was going to go back to his father and prepare a place. And that's exactly what happened. After he rose again and he was with his disciples still for a period of 40 days about continuing to teach them, instruct them, giving proof of his resurrection... And then the time came for him to go back to his father, to do exactly what he said he was going to do in John 14, to go and get everything ready to prepare. And so as he empowers his apostles and he, he commissions them and sends them out, sure enough, he's taken into heaven 
clouds come and receive him up, and he goes back to his father. And in Acts 1.10, we read this, Acts 1.10-11, as they, the disciples, were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So he said he was going to go. He did. They were standing there gazing, it's, you know, as we would probably do, just not knowing how to process everything and, and also overcome with, with grief, no doubt. Watching and, and wishing it wasn't so, that he wasn't leaving. And so the, the angels had to say, hey, what, what are you doing? He told you what to do. He said, go. Go into Jerusalem. When I go from you to my Father, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and go to Judea and, all, and Samaria and all the region and all the parts of the world and proclaim my death and resurrection. Start building the kingdom. I've got work for you to do. But they just stood there. Stood there watching. You know, like we probably would do. And so the angels had to say, hey, it's okay. He's going, but he's going to come back again. And until then, you've got work to do. Until then, you've got this dual citizenship now. You've got this dual reality. You're here, and you're on earth, and you're still alive here. You're in the now, but you also have this future reality. You have this greater citizenship. And that's what Paul wrote about in Philippians 3.20. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly, love that word, eagerly, just like what we do around Christmas time, like every child, and if we're honest, every adult is doing, eagerly anticipating what gift do we have? What, what gift are we going to open first? Did we get what we were hoping for? Did we get what we asked for? There's this eager anticipation surrounding Christmas, and that's a good, good image of what is to mark the believer's life every day, all day, uh, every day, all year round. This eager anticipation for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await a Savior, Paul says there in this verse, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're here on earth, still going about life. We still have bills to pay and jobs to go to to get the money to pay those bills and the taxes, you know, and so we see our income shrink and shrink and shrink. That's reality. But there's a greater reality, the reality of heaven, that we're already part of. And we're waiting in the, the now and the not yet. We're waiting for our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and receive us into that greater reality. To usher us in to all that experience. Are you waiting for that? Are you actually actively waiting for it? Is it just as much a reality for you as the here and the now? Probably depends on the day, right? But we are to eagerly wait, expectantly, knowing it's a sure thing. Knowing that nothing else has to happen for that to happen. All the other things that needed to be put in place for the the coming again of our Savior has already happened. It's been accomplished. 
The 19th century Scottish scholar and theologian Alexander McLaren, commenting on this passage on Philippians 3.20, said this, The eagerness of the waiting that Paul expressed here literally means to look way out. The imagery is that of a sentry on the walls of a besieged city whose eyes are ever fixed on the pass through the hills which they knew their supporting forces would come for their rescue. Isn't that a great image? A besieged city, a sentry on the walls, looking out far, looking for a pass through the hills, knowing that their rescue would come, waiting for that. It's an eager He says, an eager anticipation and an active fixing of one's gaze and attention on a dearly desired outcome. Oh, we need rescue, don't we? My, we need rescue. You look around us every day, all throughout our world, we know something's not right. We know there's many things not right. And in all of us, whether we pay attention to it or not, there is a yearning, there's an urging for renewal, for restoration, for things to be made new, for rescue. My friends, I want to tell you this Christmas Eve day, rescue's coming. If you're in Christ, the rescue's already a done deal for you. You've already been rescued positionally. You've been rescued. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. You've been made new, but you're still in this now and the not yet. There's a dichotomy that we live in. But I promise you, just as Jesus came and as that was a reality, there is a reality that is coming. A coming full and forever rescue. It's on its way. Are you eagerly expecting it? Is your gaze fixed on it? I wish I could say for myself, just as I know you wish you could say, that that was all the time true. Yes, I'm always eagerly anticipating. I'm always ready. I'm expecting it. And I'm, I'm letting my, my expecting the coming of my Savior to inform and define all I do in every way I live. And wouldn't that be great? But most of the time, Unfortunately, if we give any thought to it at all, I mean, if we give any thought on our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays to the fact that there is a a coming King and Savior, that His coming is just as sure as His first coming was, if we give any thought at all to that, honestly, our waiting is more like, well, the waiting room. Don't you just love waiting rooms? No, of course not. Waiting rooms are the worst. They're terrible. I mean, not only are you waiting for what feels like an eternity and you start to see your body become a skeleton as you're waiting, you're around all these sick people. You know, you you come in for a checkup and you're worried about what you're going to pick up, you know? Uh, the waiting room, it's a, it's a miserable experience. And often that's how e- even we as Christians live when it comes to thinking about the coming of our Savior. It's like, well, will it just please hurry up and come? You know, we're, I mean, we're, we're tired of life as we know it. We're tired of, of life on this side of eternity. It's hard to endure sometimes, some days more than others. And so, 
that's often how we go about our waiting, rather than the kind of focus and an eager anticipation that Paul was talking about, or like Alexander McLaren illustrated there. And like Solomon said about there being nothing new under the sun, wise guy, that Solomon. It's been like that, that, that struggle with perspective, that struggle with waiting the right way. That's, it's been that way, obviously, from the very beginning of the church because the Apostle Peter was led of the Holy Spirit to write the following. 2 Peter 3, 1-4. 2 Peter 3, 1-4. The Apostle writes this. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up. See, that's what's needed. I think that's what's needed in our lives as well. I think that's what's needed in your life today and in mine We need a stirring up of the reality that awaits us. The stirring up of the reality that we've been put into. The stirring up of that eager, joyful anticipation rather than the miserable drudgery waiting like a waiting room experience. This is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. We need reminded, church that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So see that verification there, that validation? The, The prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New, all confirming the same thing. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days... Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where? Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's new under the sun. It's the same kind of thing that's said now. It's the same kind of thing maybe you've been tempted to think. Well, if He's really coming again, why hasn't He come yet? Where is He? Where is this coming? And certainly that's what people, cynics and skeptics and, and uh, all those types will, will say, well, you know, if he's going to come, why hasn't he come yet? I mean, how bad does it have to get for him to come? And you can, if you're not careful, you can have that same attitude and that mindset can creep in. So what Peter said there to his readers is just as relevant to us. We need to remember that just because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I think that's important to remember. Just because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There's all kinds of experiences in our life where we've waited for something and wondered, is this thing ever going to happen? Is this situation ever going to change? Am I ever going to get you know, fill in the blank. Am I ever going to experience whatever it was you're waiting to experience? And sure enough, it happened. Some of you uh, ladies were wondering if you were ever going to get a ring. Was it ever going to happen? And it did. You know, miracle of miracles, it happened. We have this experience all through our life where we wait and we wait and we, we're, tem- we're tempted to think because it hasn't happened yet, well, I guess it's just not going to. And then it does. 
So just because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Just because our Savior hasn't come back yet does not mean He's not coming back. He is. He will. And to that end, the, the Apostle Peter continued on, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. He says this. Remember, he, he just, we just read that uh, he pointed out that mockers and cynics are saying, well, where is the promise of His coming? Everything's continued the same way it always has. Nothing's changed. Nothing's different. Verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Why has He not come? Why is he tarrying? Why is he waiting? Well, here's a a really good clue that Peter shares. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Maybe, just maybe, the reason the Lord Jesus Christ has not come yet is because you, personally, here today, have not come to Him yet. And He's giving you another chance. If you're here today, and you are breathing, and you're in this place, and you're hearing this message, you're hearing the truth of the Word of God about the coming of Jesus, and you have not yet given your life to Jesus, He's tarrying so that you will come to Him and be ready for Him to come for you. Today's your chance. Today's another opportunity. He's patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Verse 10, but, see, it's not just, it's not just a, a, a constant open door. It's not that there will always be more chance, more opportunity. There is an end to that. The door will close at some point. Verse 10 tells us that. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, you know, unexpectedly in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. It will happen. So what does that mean for us as believers? What's the application of this? Well, I want to suggest to you that waiting for the day of Christ's return should affect our day-to-day living. Waiting for the day of Christ's return should affect our day-to-day living. And I want to, I want to give you two specific ways. I mean, there are so many ways that that should ha- be true and, and that we should have that effect on our day-to-day living. So many various applications. We could, we could do an entire uh, series, multiple series, on all the ways that that should affect us. But today, I want to give you just two specific ways that waiting for Christ's return should affect our day-to-day living, how, how it should affect our day-to-day living as believers. The first way is how we walk. How we walk. 
We find that in 2 Peter 3, still in that same chapter, verses 11 through 13. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. So he, he said, I want to stir up your, your waiting, your anticipation. Don't, don't become cynical and jaded like the mockers around you saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he? Remember, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. He, he told, said all that. Now he says this, since, since, because all of these things are to be destroyed in this way. That's what he just got done saying in the previous verse. The heavens being destroyed and everything that we know as it is being done away with to make room for the new. Since, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise, remember, God is a promise-keeping God. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That will be part of what we'll talk about in our next series coming up in just a couple weeks. New heavens and a new earth, all that God makes new. So, the first area of, of impact or of effect that that waiting for Christ's return should cause is an effect on how we walk. We don't just wait without doing anything. We don't just climb up on some remote mountain and just keep our eyes up to the sky, waiting, waiting, waiting. No. We, we live for the One we're waiting for while we're waiting on Him. <laughs> we live for Him. And we need to live for Him well, believer. We need to live for Him well while we wait. We need to conduct ourselves in holiness and in godliness, like Peter says here. That's the sort of people we need to be as we look for and hasten even by our living and by our witness to those who have yet to come to Christ. We hasten the coming of the day of God by how we live for Him in our own personal lives of holiness and in our lives as ambassadors. For him. So how we walk, that's the first area of effect, how we live our lives. And then secondly, how we worship. It should affect how we worship. The coming of our King, the coming of our Savior should also affect how we worship. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25 points to this. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Verse 23, the author says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Why should we do that? How can we hold fast the confession without wavering? He tells us why. He tells us the reason. For He who promised... Are you catching a theme here? A promise? The promise-keeping God? For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate, stir one another up to love and good deeds. So often we, we stir up one another in the wrong direction. You know, <laughs> we're good at stirring one another up, but it's more like provoking. We need to consider about how to stir one another up in encouragement and in hope and, and challenge one another and kind of cheer for one another as we're waiting for our coming Savior. Hey, don't give up. Don't get weary. Don't get weary. 
Don't get jaded. Stir one another up in a positive direction. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And here's the, here's the key. Here's the key verse with, with what I said about our, our waiting affecting how we worship. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but, here's the contrast, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord's return, drawing near. And it is drawing near. We're closer to His return than we were before. We're closer to His return than the original church was. And, you know, I, I... in no way am I suggesting that there's any sense in trying to set days or uh, looking at circumstances and saying, aha, see, it's, it's definitely going to happen because things are just so bad. I, I'm not suggesting that. I am, however, saying as our world gets increasingly more wicked, as we see uh, what Scripture says will be true of the last days prior to the coming of Jesus, as we see those things become more and more evident, Surely, we should come away from all that saying, yeah, the day is drawing near. The day is drawing near. And so as we see the day drawing near, we don't gather and assemble less, church. We gather all the more. We encourage one another all the more. We look for more opportunities, not less, to gather and assemble as the ecclesia of God. Jesus won't come as he came before. But his second coming is just as sure. Jesus won't come as he came before, but his second coming is just as sure. The first time Jesus came, he came in submission and humility. He came as a needy, helpless baby, came into poverty. The second time, The second time, He will come in victory and glory. He will come as King of kings and Lord of lords. He'll come in majesty. He'll come to set right all that is wrong. He'll come to restore all things. Revelation 1-7 says this. I want to leave you with this, this promise, this reality. Revelation 1-7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Yes, Amen. So church, let's believe that, and let's live well for Him while we wait. Let's walk together well while we wait. Let's tell others about the reality of Jesus, that He came and that He's coming again, and that they can be ready with us. And until He comes, they can have the joy and the hope that we too have. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the reality of Jesus I thank You for the reality of the first Advent that we celebrate today and and especially tomorrow. But I thank You for the reality of the second Advent. And oh, Father, may we live in light of the return of our Savior. 
May we live for Him well while we're waiting for Him to come. May we walk together well in unity and in love and harmony. May we, may we together resolve to be the ambassadors of Christ and the kingdom that we are already part of that we're called to be. And oh, I pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.